The spring classics are in full swing and Flow Bikes has you covered with Amstel Gold Race just around the corner. Make sure that you never miss a moment. Head over to Flow Bikes to check out all the live and on-demand classics action they have available for viewers in the United States, Canada, and Australia. Plus, go inside the racing with athlete interviews, in-depth course previews, expert analysis, and tons of other exclusive content. The classics are here, so don't miss out. Subscribe now at flowbikes.com slash velonews. That's flobikes.com forward slash velonews. And when you purchase a Flow Bike subscription, you'll get access to the entire Flow Sports Network of over 25 sports. Don't miss up. Sign up at flowbikes.com forward slash velonews. That's flobikes.com forward slash velonews. Thanks to Flow Bikes for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Let's get on with the show. Uh, welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you. You guessed it. It's a busy Tuesday here at the home offices outside of Boulder, Colorado. We have lots of stuff going on in the bike racing world, even though Paris-Roubaix did not occur this past weekend, which we're all very sad and bummed out about. Uh, the bike racing world has served up plenty of racing, feature stories, analysis, and lots and lots of controversy. Uh, one of the stories we've been covering on the website uh, involves the um, proposed 2022 World Cyclocross Championships in Arkansas and how that event is being influenced by the anti-transgender laws passed by the Arkansas legislature. We've reached out to a number of great voices on this topic, including Molly Cameron, Chris Stefano, and we have a feature story coming up this week about how the calls for boycott are impacting the races and even some of the bike businesses there. Um, it is a challenging story, but one you should definitely uh, read about and check out velonews.com for all the uh, strong reporting we've uh, we've done on that. Um, on today's podcast, we have lots to get to as well. Uh, second half of the show, actually linked up with an old friend of mine, Mike Creed, the manager of the Avolo domestic racing team. And uh, Mike and his team flew all the way to Greece, the island of Rhodes in the Mediterranean Sea to do a bike race because the uh, domestic US bike racing scene has basically been shut down and has not restarted again um, with COVID with some of the big races like Redlands Classic, Tour of the Gila, either canceled or pushed back. We're still waiting to hear about what's going to happen with the Tour of Utah. It sounds like that race may be off for 2021 entirely. And that puts uh, teams like Evolo and these young up-and-coming American riders in a really challenging situation. And so Mike took his team all the way, uh, a quarter of the way across the world to do a race. And we link up with Mike to talk about, oh, the state of the U.S. racing scene, uh, what it was like to race over there, and uh, what it means for Evolo to be able to do those races. But before we get to Mike, we have bike racing to talk about, and I have Andrew Hood and Jim Cotton on the line. We're going to talk all about what happened to the Basque country and preview some of the Amstel uh, and the Ardennes races. Um, guys, Basque country, I feel like, is a race that is normally totally overshadowed by the Cobbled Classic. But it is a cool race. It's a challenging race. Serves up a lot of drama and just really challenging courses. Um, Andrew Hood, what can you say about the Basque Country uh, stage race and like the, sort of the feel and flavor of this race. Cause I feel like a lot of fans miss this race every year. 
Yeah, hi, Fred. Yeah, that's right. The Basque Country. I mean, really, inside the Peloton, many people consider that the hardest one-week stage race in the entire calendar. Uh, they say it's almost as hard as a Grand Tour, just compressed into six days of racing. It's just up and down all day, these steep, kind of just uh, insanely steep Basque hills. Uh, this year was real lucky, the weather. I've never seen the weather so good for an entire week of that race. Usually, uh, you get these kind of uh, northern Atlantic fronts blowing off into uh, northern Spain there in the Basque Country, and the weather can just be horrendous. High winds, rain, cold, sometimes snow. But uh, for the most part, the race all this past week was all in the sun. And it was really – it's really a great race. The fans there are among the – you know, the most passionate really in, in, uh, Europe cycling, you know, re- uh, kind of, uh, right up there ranks up there with, uh, the, the Flanderin and the Italians for their kind of passion. Of course, you know, that's where the Uscatel, uh, Scotty team came from out of the eighties uh, and nineties and those famous, uh, orange jerseys and all the fans would be with their Basque flags lining the tour de France climbs, uh, you know, back way back in the day, you know, insulting and yelling at Lance Armstrong as he plowed through them and demoralized their hopes and dreams of winning the tour year after year. <laughs> but it's a really, uh, it's a great place to go watch a race. It's a great place to ride your bike. Just bring uh, some extra gearing on the old uh, freewheel there for those climbs. Yeah. Basque Country to me is the proverbial like midweek um, concert in a small town where a big band is playing. You know, Perry Nice. Pyrenees is a big race. Like big riders go there and they all want to win and they're racing to win and the tactics and strategies are, are somewhat controlled. And, you know, by the time we get to the Giro, the same sort of thing. Like everyone is racing to win. Everyone's racing to win at the Basque Country, but you see stuff, you see riders try new stuff out. It's like, like I, I went to school in Santa Cruz, California, and a lot of times we would get these bands coming through the town. They were big bands, but they'd play on like a Wednesday night because they were in between like the LA gig and the San Francisco gig. And they're like, ah, let's stop off in Santa Cruz. And you'd see them like experimental stuff, like maybe maybe a little like loose with a set list or sort of like doing some weird improvisational stuff. And I feel like that was the story of Basque Country this year because we saw this thrilling blow for blow showdown between UAE Emirates and Yumbo Visma. But the tactics employed by these teams were a little different from what we're normally used to seeing, namely Yumbo Visma which usually comes out strong out of the gate and tries to control a race start to finish, played around with like giving up the jersey and then racing aggressively, you know, sending Primoz Roglic up the road. And to me, it was just, it was a thrilling race. Jim, you were covering this race for VelNews.com, watching every day, doing the race reports and watching these thrilling weekend races. I mean, what was your take specifically on Yumbo Visma's strategy to go about winning this race? Yeah. Hey, Fred. Well, it's quite interesting because on the fourth stage i think of six they uh they had roglic in the leader's jersey and um they sort of let brandon mcnulty the young american go up the road and took a took the leader's jersey off his back and um while roglic kind of stayed back and marked pogachar and um everybody was was kind of jumping on Yumbo Visma's back saying like, oh, you know, don't understand your tactics, what you're doing and, you know, general Twitter uproar. And then um, it all came down to this final stage Saturday, a real short kind of spicy kind of mountainous stage. And uh, basically Astana Premier Tech completely blew the race apart on their descent and um, kind of split the group into 
about five different bits. And McNulty was caught off the back and while Roglic pushed on and um, Pogacar and McNulty sort of stayed back to work together. Um, and rather than Pogacar or, or McNulty sort of going off on the chase, they kind of stayed to work together. And eventually, unfortunately, McNulty blew. And by that point, uh, Roglic had got so far up the road that not even Pogacar on the form he's on now could chase back. So it was interesting that UAE had this kind of dilemma between backing the young new guy in the leader's jersey and or the Tour de France champ, while Roglic just did something completely different with like a 50k attack. And norm- normally we would see him win from a, a bunch sprint or a you know a short uphill kick. So yeah, there was a bit of a uh, midweek band kind of uh, experimental set going on. Yeah, it was like Roglic was like, uh, hey guys, instead of doing my normal solo here, I'm going to add an extra like 15 bars to it. And I've been experimenting maybe with some psychedelics in my garage. Maybe there's like a, a violin bow that comes out or some really weird distortion. And all of a sudden you get a masterpiece and it worked out for him. I mean, this was this was up there, I feel like, with one of Roglic's best wins because it wasn't the standard Roglic win, which is like do great in the time trial, you know, find a couple of uphill finishes and like get the gaps, you know, explosive speed, turn of speed and like stomp everyone into dust then for the rest of the race. This was okay, you know, take an early lead, but uh, I don't know if I really want to defend on this hilly terrain for six full days. So let the lead go up the road and then have to do something special on that final day. I mean, Hoodie, what do you make of this win for Roglic and these tactics for Yumbo Visma? Yeah, it was, a, it was a really fun race to watch for all that stuff like you guys just mentioned. Uh, and that day that McNulty took the jersey, you know, you have to remember that uh, that uh, Yumbo Visma had their Danish rider there who ended up second overall. So, you know, they were covering the move themselves. And it really worked out to their to their benefit because in a lot of ways – they played it quite smart because they basically neutralized Pogachar by letting McNulty take that win and that gap. Because that day when you saw McNulty up the road, the Jumbo Vismo guy was with him. And really, uh, Pogachar, uh, excuse me, Roglic was not too worried about that scenario because he had 20 seconds on Pogachar right next to him. So by letting uh, McNulty go up the road, and having the confidence that he could take that back that time in that final day, I thought it showed a lot of uh, kind of maturity in the way that uh, Roglic raced that race. And it kind of reveals, I think, a new kind of sense of tactical kind of uh, uh, acumen or, or just, a, you know, kind of the way sophistication, the way they raced that race. It wasn't just a sledgehammer approach that they've kind of, you know, used over in the past, I thought it was quite a technic- technical uh, masterpiece in many ways. Yeah, just to add to Hoodie's point, there's without wanting to take anything away from uh, Brandon McNulty, it's, it's almost a sense that Roglic and Jumbo Visma sensed that it was Pogachar that was the man that had to be watched. And like Hoodie said, this young, this young Danish guy, uh, Jonas Vingago, I think his name is, um, they let him mark McNulty. So it was sort of, pairing up the two younger, well, the the two lesser proven riders with the two Tour de France stars. No, and I mean, I feel like that is 
a wise way to look at the situation. Look, we love Brandon McNulty. We're huge Brandon McNulty fans here. He's been on the podcast. We are, we've been following his progression since he was literally a child. Um, but you know, he's not yet at the level and maybe he'll never get to be the same level as a Tade Pogacar, who is a Tour de France winner. So I think that looking at that situation and thinking, well, Tade Pogacar is really the rival here. He's really the danger man. Brandon McNulty is strong. He's second place in the individual time trial by just two seconds, but he's still kind of untested in the mountains. You know, we saw him do great at the Giro last year, have a wonderful individual time trial, but eventually crumble in the high mountains. And I think that's probably what they were uh, betting on. I mean, you know, Brandon didn't win he was, you know, he was in the leader's jersey. It was that final day. I mean, it was a shark's tooth profile of the day. And the, the climbs were not like grinder climbs. They were steep. They were awful. They were really uh, punishing, painful climbs. And Brandon, he's taller and he's a, you know, big diesel engine. And that just doesn't suit his terrain. Um, I'm, I'm pretty... I'm pretty happy and confident with what this means for Brandon. We haven't seen an American leading a world tour stage race in like, I don't know, the better part of a decade. So even though Brandon uh, faded at the end, I was really happy to see it. And I think this marks a big step forward in his progression. Yeah, you're right, Fred. The the last American to to lead a world tour race was uh, TJ Van Garderen in 2019 Tour of California. But uh, in, in Europe, I don't know. I can't remember the last time I was digging through pro cycling stats and I lost track after a couple of years. Um, but, you know, that, that the final uh, scenario there really at, at the Basque Country reminded me a little bit of how Tom Dumoulin lost uh, the 2015 Vuelta a España. It was a similar scenario where you had a really a little bit longer stage that day at the Vuelta, but it was uh, one of these uh, just a, a stage stacked with climbs. And there was just a little bit of a gap that got caught. Just just what happened uh, last weekend in the best country where they were only 20, 30 seconds behind uh, that group. When they came off that off that uh, descent, uh, it was, Jim said, you know, it was a stun on Movistar, just kind of racing completely random like they always do. They were just trying to break up the race and see what happened. Of course, neither Movistar nor Astana had anyone that had the legs to go with. Roglic to really profit from their chaos they provoked. But back in 2015, it was the same thing when, it, again, it was Astana with Fabio Aru. They attacked early, split up the bunch, and Tom Dumoulin, despite being a great time trialist, could not close this gap. And it was about 20 seconds on a flat road. He couldn't get across, and he ended up losing the Welta that year. And the same thing happened with McNulty. I mean, you know, had he got back onto that group, Chances are he would have made it over the next climb and gone up that final uh, arate. I mean, there I do believe he would have been gapped because that is such a steep, uh, short, hard climb. Uh, but it was uh, just shows you how tactics and how just those little differences, even on a descent, can win or lose a race. As a fan, as a watcher of bike racing, I just was thrilled to see these big teams racing with uh, such different tactics and, you know, racing aggressively on a stage like this. So as bummed as I was to see poor Brandon tumble out of yellow and, you know, really sort of get get dropped big time uh, on a tough stage like that. As a fan of bike racing, I was just, I was thrilled to see, you know, strong teams racing that aggressively that far out. I mean, it was sort of this old school approach to racing where the gun goes off and everyone is just kind of going for it. Yeah. For McNulty as well. I mean, he's, he, he rode well at Paris Nice. He rode well at, um, 
his second race, uh, Catalunya. So he may not have got the the mark on his Palmares, but I think he would have learned a lot. And um, just going back to what you just said, um, Fred, about these big teams kind of racing differently, I think one thing that was quite interesting was that Ineos Grenadiers didn't really figure much in the race. So they had Adam Yates there, Theo Gagenhart and Richard Carapaz, and Yates finished fourth. But um, other than that, this you know this kind of Grand Tour powerhouse didn't really didn't really play a factor, and it's a bit of a sign of the way the the kind of power dynamics have changed in stage racing. Well, okay, that's an important point, Jim. Here, so look, I mean, obviously, this is the Tour of the Basque Country. It's a six day race. This is not the Tour de France, um, but. If we are to extrapolate any hot, hot takes, any takeaways that pertain to the Tour de France or to examine this race, pour over what happened and like come to any conclusions uh, about the Tour de France. I mean, Jim, as a as a watcher of bike race, bike racing, I mean, should alarm bells going be going off for Ineos? Were there any takeaways that you had that pertain to the Tour for Ineos or any of these other teams? Give me your tour takes after uh, Best Country. I would say it's it's too early for alarm bells to be going off uh, at Ineos because there's still you know um, two and a half three months till the tour, but um, it's just interesting wrinkle that Adam Yates has been consistently the best or has well has shown the best of himself so far this season, and the guys like Geraint Thomas who wasn't actually out of the Basque Country, but you know some of these other guys have been have still yet to show themselves. So I think there's just kind of questions to ask about where Ineos's kind of captains for the tour, which is Thomas, uh, Theo Gegenhart and Richard Carapaz, sort of where they are at the moment and how much they've got left to do before they go to France. So to read between the lines on your takeaway, are you thinking then that Adam Yates should be on that Tour de France roster? I I don't know. He's not, he's not a... Uh, proven Grand Tour rider like Garin Thomas is but I just think well I think one one thing that I am suggesting is perhaps Teo Gagenhart is I know he's been injured a lot but his place may be at some sort of peril ooh hot take I like it I like it we're cooking up the hot takes here Jim Cotton just tossing those hot takes how about you Hoodie Any um, anything we can extrapolate as we look towards the Tour de France from Basque Country any takes that you came away uh, with yeah, I guess I was kind of on the other end of the spectrum from Jim, just thinking that, uh, you know, the tour is in July, we hope, and it's still quite a long ways away. I mean, maybe it's because I'm, I'm old school and it's all about peaking for July. You know, what happens in March and April doesn't really count. It's good for confidence, good to kind of reconfirm you're on the right way. But I, I had came away with the feeling that, uh, you know, our Pogachar and Roglic just kind of bury themselves and really run out of gas by the time the tour comes along in July. I mean, look what happened to uh, Vanderpool and uh, Van Eric. You know, they raced hard last fall, raced through a slipper cross, and then came into the classics, you know, a little undercooked, overcooked. And you're just wondering, you know, all this pressure these guys are trying to win every time they race. And, you know, yeah, they're more selective with their dates. They're doing training camps, they're tapering, and they're doing all their timing and, and building their fitness for their peaks. But you just wonder at a certain point that that uh, it's going to snap. And that's what happened to uh, Rivlitz last year at the Tour anyway. You know, 
that last day, man, the elastic snapped and he lost the yellow jersey. And you just wonder, it's like, haven't those guys learned that lesson? I mean, come on. You know, it happened with Roglic last year. It happened with Wout in the Classics. It's like, come on, guys. You got to learn how to uh, pick your dates. I like it. So, Hoodie, your take is you're concern trolling. You are like, uh, if we were to go back to our band uh, analogy, it's like, guys, Live Aid is coming up in three weeks. You're playing at the Santa Cruz Catalyst and like going completely wild and doing nine minute solos with uh, with violin bows standing on your head. What are you doing? We need you to be fresh for Live Aid here. I, I like it. These are two very strong takes. And I hope that the listeners appreciate um, just the A plus nuclear takeage that they are being delivered right here. Well, it was the Basque Country. It was a thrilling race. You can actually watch um, replays of it on GCN Plus, which I've been doing because I didn't get to watch it live. But um, definitely some good bike racing in there. Uh, guys, before we get to Mike Creed, we have a couple of topics I want to blow through here. The first is Cav's back. Oh, Mark Cavendish. Cav, the Manx Missile. He uh, is, we're recording this after stage three of the tour of Turkey, the presidential tour of Turkey. And uh, Mark Cavendish has not, has won not one, but two stages. His first uh, victory since 2018, his first back to back victory since ah, a long time ago. And um, the internet is alight with opinions and smiley face emojis and heart shaped emojis because everyone seems to be very, very happy about uh, Mark Cavendish being back to his old winning ways again. Um, Jim Cotton, before we get to the actual like strategies and what this means for Mark Cavendish, what's been your takeaway about the internet's uh, very positive response to Mark Cavendish winning bike races again? Oh, it's the, it's the newest, uh, it's the newest loving. I mean, he, a year ago, everybody was on his back, kind of saying, "Oh, he's old, he's past it, he's fat, he's useless." You know, why is he like? Why is he going to quick step? Uh, whether they're right or wrong or not, and and now it's sort of how how times have changed. Like everybody's sort of you know a big Cav fan, and as a uh, as a Brit, obviously, and kind of growing up at a time when he was in his prime, it is a nice story to see, but. Um, you know that when even the BBC News, uh, our main kind of state broadcaster over here, when they when they start talking about it on the main kind of uh, radio uh, news things, that it's uh, there's a bit of a hype train going on. Well, that was my question: is like, has Cav winning dislodged like Prince Philip and Meghan Markle and uh, all of this like royal drama from the front page of the Sun or the London Daily Telegraph or whatever crazy newspapers you have over there? Is this like front page reading material for the Brits? No, not yet. I mean, you know, royal royal scandals and royal uh, passings away is is kind of the cream of the the tabloid crop but uh yeah cavendish did get star billing in some of the um the sports pages and on sports broadcasts so that's quite a big deal you know it's normally uh wall-to-wall soccer at this time of year so there's some good vibes going on around here so you're going to tell me that piers morgan will not be fired from his next job for his uh, fiery cavendish takes well it depends how hot the takes are but i think he's safe for the minute <laughs> um Andrew Hood, what can you tell us though about like what's the what's the backstory here? Cavendish goes to to kind of quick step. It sounds like it is a deal that is light on the cash, heavy on the bonuses. Um, why? What can you tell us about like why Mark Cavendish did this as opposed to like maybe taking a bigger paycheck elsewhere or just retiring? Yeah, I mean, from the sound of it, there really wasn't many elsewhere's out there um, because 
he comes with a certain price tag. And, uh, you know, I think the key in, in this scenario, just like when we talked about Peter Sagan was uh, specialized, you know, there's definitely an interest there uh, between the bike sponsor and Quickstep and Lefebvre. There's, uh, you know, Patrick Lefebvre loves these kinds of stories. You know, he loves to play this Fingali of this of the Peloton. He loves to, you know, nurture young talents and and revive the older talents. So I think uh, it was a great opportunity for him. There obviously was space on the team. I think that uh, for the budget, it's not costing them very much, but they're getting a lot out of it. Obviously, especially now with the two victories, you know, huge kind of boost for the team. And uh, you know, that's another card that Lefebvre just has the ability to play, you know, he can, he knows which uh, strings to pull in the media and he knows how to, uh, you know, kind of, you know, a lot of these guys inside the Peloton, you know, they'll swap teams, they'll move around, but a smart guy like Cavendish is always keeping in contact with the key managers and the key players in the Peloton. So when it's also a respect to Cavendish, I mean, some people can slag him off uh, for a variety of reasons, but he is a, a former world champion, you know, number two in the all-time winners list at the Tour de France. He deserves the respect in the peloton. You saw that when he won uh, after the first stage, how everyone in the bunch, his teammates as well as his rivals, were all congratulating him. So, yeah, it's the feel-good story of the week. Okay, I'm here to throw some cold water on the feel-good story of the week. As happy as I am about Mark Cavendish having his wins um, and, you know, Mark Cavendish has been legendarily grumpy in the last few years about uh, his treatment in the media, but I'm, I'm happy to see him win. That's great. Go for it, Kev. Um, I will point out that these victories came at the presidential tour of Turkey against the ghost of Andre Greipel, some guy named Arvin Arnin, and um, uh, Jesper Philipsen, who's very fast. So actually beating Jesper Philipsen was, is a quite an accomplishment. But, you know, it's not like this was against Sagan and Sam Bennett and Wout Van Aert and, you know, uh, oh, who's your man from Blato Sudal? I, 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 I think we need to, like, keep some perspective that Cavendish is winning these sprints, not exactly against, like, the Tour de France's top lineup of sprinters. But that's the only cold water I'm going to splash on this. Um, do we think – that this is going to lead to Mark Cavendish getting like Grand Tour starts, Tour de France uh, long team. What do we think is going to uh, be the outcome of Mark Cavendish winning these races uh, for the rest of the season? Uh, I think I don't think Sam Bennett's going to be losing any sleep in the next two or three months worrying. Uh, I think two wins in Turkey is not uh, kind of winning a Tour de France sprint. I, I don't think Cav's going to be crossing the line first on the Champs-Élysées for uh, however many, third, fourth time. Uh, this year, at least. Yeah, I, honestly, I agree with Jim. I don't see, I don't see a scenario where Kevin just goes to the tour. I mean, not only do they have Bennett, they have a, another three or four guys who are stronger and faster than Cavendish who can still sprint, even if ben, Bennett falls out of the shower one day and breaks his leg and doesn't go. Uh, and plus, the tour's changed a lot since Cav was winning all the stages five, six, seven years ago. Tour's much harder with more climbs, even though this this year's tour is a little bit more old school. But uh, the speed and the, the, the climbing that's in, in, in the tour, I mean, Cavendish was struggling with that already even, uh, even five years ago. Uh, so I, I don't see it happening. Yeah, I think we were both there. What was it, 2018 tour when he got time cut and stories started circulating through the press room of like there were some photographers and reporters out there at the finish line where he was riding up the hill about to be time cut and was just like cussing at people for taking his picture. That's the Cav I will always choose to remember, though, the fiery Cav. Um, guys, before we get out of here, we have Amstel Gold race going on this Sunday, men's and women's races. This is a thrilling race. It's a race that often is overlooked because it's not cobbled, but still is very punishing. Uh, did not happen last year because of COVID-19. It is happening this year, but it sounds like 
it is going to happen on an abridged circuit. Um, Andrew Hood, what can you tell us about um, the route and uh, you know what's going what's going into this Amstel Gold Race to be able to have it happen? Yeah, the the organizer basically had to find a solution to get the green light from uh, local health authorities. So they're trying to uh, well, they are holding it on, on a, a shortened circuit, similar a little bit to how the worlds were a few years ago in Wackenberg. Uh, up and over the Coburg, and then I think a different approach to the actual finishing lap. Um, but it's the only thing they could do. It's not ideal because that race, part of that race is, uh, you know, it's like a plate of spaghetti, the Amstel Gold Race, really. And it's just right turn, left turn, right turn, skinny uh, farm roads. Uh, so it'll be a little bit different. It'll be raced a little bit differently on a circuit than it would kind of the point-to-point format. But I, I still think it's great that the race is happening because last year it was canceled. And uh, I think it's one of the most overlooked races of the calendar as well. Um, you know, it's kind of bundled with the Ardennes. Uh, and even though it's in the Limburg region, it's not part of the official Ardennes of Belgium. But it's uh, it's one of my favorite races. But we used to cover it every year. We always stay in Maastricht, kind of a fun little college town down there by the river, and uh, make a good week of it between there and, and Liège back in the days. Remember those, Fred? We used to actually cover the Ardennes. That, that was way back in the day. Yeah, but I was dumb, and I never stayed in Maastricht. I stayed in Liège, which, uh, word to the wise, if you are going to go check out the Ardennes, stay in Maastricht. Don't stay in Liège. Liège is a bummer. Maastricht is beautiful. Liège, yeah, yeah, it's like a, it's, you know, kind of a museum of br- rundown factories. Maastricht, everyone speaks English. The hotels are nice. Um, that I won't slag Belgium too bad on that one. Uh, one year I did the Amstel Cyclosportive, which is a very difficult and is just, you know, a million hills, played a spaghetti map. Like I was totally bushed after that. Um, yeah, I, I am looking forward to Amstel. Um, you know, it's there's the, the Kutenberg and the Big Gulpenberg and the... I don't know. There's a million, million little steep little climbs. It's a difficult race. A strong rider always wins. Jim, what are your favorite Amstel memories? Right off the top of your head, I need a quick answer right now. Well, I too have done the uh, the cyclosportive and the main memories are when you get kind of local clubs of Dutch and Belgian guys just riding in full sort of pace lines at about 50k an hour for the best part of six hours and just completely laying everybody else into the gutter yeah that sounds uh, about right there's the Gehule Hemmerberg and the uh, Eyebrowsberg and the Dreidendambindeberg and a lot of bergs out there in uh, southeastern uh, Holland as they say uh, Hoodie, Hoodie what are you expecting to see who are, who are some of the riders you have your eyes on yeah, I'm curious to see how uh, Van Aert can do. He's added it to his calendar with Robey being off. Uh, yeah, it kind of attracts a little bit different style of rider. I mean, obviously, all the big guys from uh, the Cowles won't be there. Uh, at least most of them won't. I mean, Gilbert's back. Uh, Valverde has never won it. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if he can get something. He's obviously going very well right now. Uh, you know, Matthews, uh, some of these guys that can finish off uh, a strong sprint at the end of a hard climbing race like this. Uh, it's always it's always a pretty uh, dynamic race and, and a pretty exciting finish. Uh, you know, there's a dozen people who could win. Yeah. I, crazy to think it's been 10 years since Gilbert did the triple. Do you remember that? It seems like it was just yesterday that he won Amstel, Flesh, and, we, and Liege. And uh, 
that is 10 years ago. That's probably my, one of my favorite recent memories. I love the Kasia Niwa Doma win from a few years back. She was so happy. It was such a passionate win for her. So, uh, Amstel Gold Race going on this weekend and you can brush up on all your bergs. Uh, Jim Cotton and Andy Hood, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Okay. We're going to get to Mike Creed and hear some insight on the U.S. domestic racing season. And then we'll be back next week for another podcast. The spring classics are in full swing and Flow Bikes has you covered. Amstel Gold Race is coming up this weekend and you don't want to miss a moment of the live and on-demand action. The live broadcast of the race is available for viewers in the United States, Canada, and Australia. Plus, you can go inside the racing with athlete interviews, in-depth course previews, expert analysis, and other exclusive content. Subscribe now at flowbikes.com slash velonews. That is F-L-O bikes.com forward slash velonews. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. And now joining us from the white sandy beaches of the island of Mykonos, it is uh, Mike Creed, manager of the Avolo Pro Team. Uh, just kidding. Mike is not on a beach somewhere, but he is in Greece at the moment because Avolo just finished up a uh, seven-day stage race or a stage race in Greece because there's not a whole lot of pro road racing going on in the U.S. right now. Mike, thanks for coming on the podcast. You know, just... Just so we all get a sense of where you are, set the scene for us right now. Where are you? Like, describe your surroundings. Uh, I'm currently, uh, actually, I'm at a Best Western, uh, but it's nice. Like, if you've ever been to a European Best Western, for some reason, they're actually really nice hotels. Uh, but I am within eyesight of a beach. Um, it's not white sand, but I'm in Rhodes. It's a Greek island and about ready to start our travels home. Mike. Yeah. So tell, please inform the readers, like the listeners and the readers, why are you on the um, uh, on the island of Rhodes? Uh, you know, in the early part of April, twenty twenty one. Normally, I feel like this time of year, you and your team would be in a Best Western somewhere in like Redlands, California, <laughs> or getting ready yeah, for the tour of Gila. And here it is, you are halfway across the world. Uh, what what's going on? Yeah, significantly worse, Best Western. Um, in case you haven't um, gone outside in about 14 months, the world kind of fell in on itself. And uh, there wasn't a lot of bike racing. So um, I hadn't directed a race since Tour Utah 2019. And the team hadn't raced since the Sun Tour in 2020, which is over a year ago. We're a team. We need a race. And uh, we originally had a pretty good schedule leaving uh, that didn't include this. It was, you know, we had a big, uh, pretty good mix of stuff in France and uh, the States at the same time. And then between those races getting canceled and pushed back, both of them, we all of a sudden just had this incredibly wide open April and May, like a real, like, uh, dearth of competition there so uh you know a lot of it um was just to get the guys feeling like bike racers again you know definitely not a sustainable model to spend so much money to go do seven days of racing but uh i feel like it's a little bit of an investment just to kind of get the guys heads back in 
and realize that they're racing and they're, they're, they're bike racers. And, you know, you, you follow the guys on social media and stuff and you kind of see like, you kind of see their heads falling off a little bit, you know, like you, you see them doing not so much bike racer things anymore. And you're like, ah, I think I kind of got to do a, a reality check on them. So that's what we did. Well, I think it's interesting because this seems to be the latest in a long um, run of um different things that you've done there at Avolo over the last 14 months to keep your guys engaged and keep them focused on bike racing. You know, obviously the COVID pandemic has affected the sport across the globe, but in the domestic U.S. racing scene where there's talented up and coming riders, but you know, hey, they might go on to college or leave the sport behind or they might stay in it. There's this delicate phase in their development career where, you know, they need to keep racing and keep competing and keep focused on the sport if they're going to stay with it. And when, you know, a big shutdown like this happens, um, I mean, that was definitely a storyline I was thinking about a few months ago. I was like, ah, what happens to all these guys where it could go one way or the other and there's no racing? And it sounds like last year, you know, you had some training camps in Crested Butte. You did some other things like extend the age of the team. This has traditionally been an under 23 team. You extended it to 24 to accommodate some of the guys who are about to age out. You know, what can you say about why you were doing this and, you know, the internal discussions you had within the team about, you know, different things you could do to to give these guys more opportunities? It's this delicate balance between giving the guys uh, opportunities, right? And you want to, you want them to make it. Obviously, when racing first started getting shut down i and i just saw the writing on the wall so i I forget exactly when we announced it but it was fairly early on i feel like it was around april or maybe may that we just said like look guys don't get crazy don't just start doing you know some bandito underground bike races and risking your health and uh, you'll have a job here next year if you want one obviously we we can't always extend that you know like uh this will be the one and only year that we're 24 and under and that was only extended to riders who had been on the team so we want to give them that we want to give them that opportunity there's only so much we can control a pandemic so uh, in a way i still feel like they're not getting a completely fair shake at this season but you know there's only so much we can do there i i just um you know we did do one training camp but we were really strict with it and um, having guys getting tested before and after. Because, you know, like I, I want a cycling team. I want these guys to race and bond with their teammates. But, like, I don't want to get anybody sick or anybody in their family sick either, you know? So it's like, it's a hard one because you don't want to, um, you don't want to seem like you yourself are not engaged or plugged in. And to be honest, it's definitely hard to stay engaged. I don't want to go to a bike race just to go to a bike race, you know? Like, I want to be safe about it and... You know, we've been here, I think in the 14 days of this trip's been, we've been tested four or five times a piece. So, you know, we're we're keeping it safe and uh, doing what we can with it. You know, Mike, you're very much a uh, a product and a graduate of the U.S. domestic racing scene. You know, you came up at a time when there was a thriving Criterium series in the Southeast and, you know, Tour of Georgia, Tour of California, and there were legitimate pro teams that paid salaries and they traveled around the U.S. every summer racing each other at places like Redlands and Gila, California, etc. You know, when you think back to those days and look at the state of the domestic U.S. scene now, I mean, it's really scary. It's scary. Um, I know that uh, the races that are still around like Joe Martin and Gila and I know Redlands 
canceled, but I, I have faith that they'll be back. You know, they want that race. And, um, you know, I, I just give a lot of respect to those guys for um, and girls behind the scenes for um, making it work. And I think uh, I think everybody in the uh, American scene or if you're if you if you claim to care at all about American cycling, I think a lot of us uh, owe them an apology too for, you know, kind of saying, oh, they're not, you know, real races. They're not the medalist races. They're not like this, that, and kind of looking down and sneering at them. But if it weren't, weren't for these people, like, where would we be? You know, we'd actually be in a really, like, even a worse spot. So I think we can't have it both ways, you know? I think you can't say that domestic racing is dead, but then also say, and the, but also be a snob about what what races are there. No, I hear you, and I appreciate that answer. And um, yeah, I mean, at some point, the domestic racing scene is only going to be as healthy as the events that are being put on and the teams that are there to compete in them. And so, while I also remember the era when you know you'd look at the start list of Redlands and it would all all be legit pro teams, you know, Navigators and Healthnet. And Prime Alliance and on that end. And now you look at Redlands and it's, you know, it's it's regional Cat 1 teams and it's aspiring pro teams right. and it's it's different. Like the state is the state of the, of the competition is absolutely different, but the race is still there and that really counts for something. And so I'm with you. You know, I give a lot of credit to um, Tour the Gila and Redlands, Joe Martin for coming back year in, year out, even though, yeah, I mean, during those era, especially like the Tour of California, it was like, oh, well, those those races. Yeah. Yeah. And it must have been really must have been really painful. I mean, yeah. Do you remember when Redlands and Sea Otter and stuff would have like Mapai and come out, you know, and Philly would come, you know, with all these teams. It's like, man, we just didn't know how good we had it. Right. Like it was just, uh, it was just right there for us. And we, uh, yeah, give a lot to have that back. But I think too, you know, like one thing that is annoying is when you have that conversation with people or you hear people talk about it, like, well, you know, I would go to, I would go spectate at Redlands, but I, I don't know anybody that's at the race. I don't know who these guys are, you know? And it's like, well, you can, you can go to the race and watch. You can find out. It's not that hard, you know? Like, and I think that's one of the things that's really annoying. Is, uh, people who slam the domestic racing circuit, but then also uh, won't drive 90 minutes to go watch a race and be on, you know, to, uh, or tweet about the race or, you know, whatever, you know, put out the social media and they give a little love back. If it's going to, if they're going to act like that, then I think they should probably find their favorite social media influencer who just takes a ton of selfies of themselves riding around after they retired and uh, still want to remain relevant and uh, taking, taking selfies of them acting silly is the way to go, you know? Well, maybe that could be our social media strategy for uh, boosting the domestic scene up there is instead is, is hire a bunch of actual like uh, Instagram influencers, you know, people who have like a couple races have tried this a couple races do. A co I'll tell you this, Fred. Spoiler, a couple races do it. Well, I'm saying outside of the world of bike racing, maybe someone with like a beauty brand or like oh. like a hip hop brand that's yeah. like coming up. And they're like, all right, yeah. guys, this is uh, Chloe. She has, uh, you know, a perfume brand. And she's big yeah. in the influencer TikTok space. So she's going to be the marshal for Redlands this year. We just need more TikTokers to race bikes, really. Mike, within this ecosystem that is changing, and yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say that the U.S. 
domestic road scene has been shrinking over the last few years. What role does your team play? What role does Evolo play? And how do you go about trying to give an opportunity to aspiring pros? It's important to like keep like uh, for, I guess I'm talking to myself, but it's important to keep your head on and realize where you've been and what you've seen and what you're providing and put that in context to what you want cycling to be, not what it currently is. You know, um, you see a lot now, like these teams will, will sign like a, they'll, they'll pay the UCI fee to be a division three team. And, and there's no other options out there from a lot of riders. So then they get some, you know, talented riders and, and um, you know, that they, they can go really well in the domestic circuit and stuff like this. And they think because um, they have a team car with a wrap on it or whatever. And, you know, they won the race. Like they're this professional team and like, they're the, like, that's the bar, right? Like, and that they're the bar for professionalism. And you're just like, no, like the bar has been lowered, right? You haven't come up. And if I, I hold myself to that, the fact is, is, you know, like we are, I think we provide the very minimum of what a pro team should be, you know, we give, um, the guys a year round stipend for incidental um, expenditures when we're not around, but when they, everything's paid for, when they come to the race, food, travel, home bikes, uh, race bikes, clothing, everything, they, they can come to the race and forget their wallet. Um, we don't provide a proper salary, but then again, we're an under 23 team too. So um, I wish we could, but you know, this is the budget, right? And um, uh, so at the I think I provide the very minimum because teams keep going away. It makes us look rich. It makes us look like we're uh, the high standard. And it, I find that really unfortunate. I would really appreciate if we were looked at as the minimum. Because I tell you what, people forget about us all the time when we get the minimum respect. So might as well. <laughs> you know, I wish there were more pro teams out there that can make it to prove that. But, but you know, you, you get invites then to Tour of Utah. And you get invites yeah. for um, the other big domestic pro races. And it, you've shown that you can adapt and get an invite to a European race and uh, give these guys racing opportunities even when a lot of the other domestic pro teams are grounded. So, Mike, I wouldn't sell, I wouldn't sell yourself short. No, that no, I appreciate that. Well, I, I guess, um, yes, we, we do give opportunities. And um, that's, that's very, very true. We do give opportunities. And if you want to be a bike racer and try to make it and you're self-motivated and hungry and passionate, you can do a lot on this team. Like, uh, let's say with <laughs> Toy Roads, we, I mean, from the local teams to the pro teams to the small Croatian teams and, you know, Romanian teams, we had the least amount of staff by far, you know, we're a three staff team. I ran into Jonas Carney on the airport and the airport coming over here. And he was telling me how he had 18 staff members. And he's like, he was asking us how many staff members we had. And we're like, you're looking at them. And he's like, no, no, but like, you know, total, not just here. They're like, you're looking at them. It's a mechanic, Swanee and the director. <laughs> like, that's it, man. You know, and um, I think if you, if you think that, uh, if you're looking for an easy, cushy route, I can't tell you that it's, that, that's it. I don't. Ha I can't send a swan to your house to do a massage, but um, I'll take care of you, and uh, I'll do it the way that I did it. I, I know that was good enough, and I'm not some hard 
Sean Kelly type. I'm pretty soft, really. So, Mike, give us some uh, highlights from the tour of Rhodes. I mean, you get over there, you bring the team, you're doing this race. It sounds like it was a very challenging race. Um, what were some highlights uh, from the team over there? Um, you know, seeing the guys come around, I knew uh, the first days were going to be bad just because they haven't raced that distance. And um, But seeing from where they started and just seeing that improvement every day, was really really nice and um those guys were just awesome and like every day they got better and we just had bad luck on stage two and or stage one one of the like stage two maybe where gate we had like gauge uh flatted scott crashed eric um had got caught behind that crash and like so if that wouldn't happen you know we would have finished with um at least two guys in the top 10 and probably gauge in the top five because uh, he was riding so well. Um, but you know, that was, that was a rough way to end the stage, you know, to have a really good 180 K and then the last seven K were just like, you know, just madhouse. But um, seeing the guys come together, seeing them think about, you know, the next training camp or race and getting excited. That was really, really um, awesome. So, you know, it's kind of a boring answer, but that's it. But obviously, you know, being on a Greek island is like a – it's like a punchline to a joke, right? Like, sorry, I can't talk about on a Greek island. So uh, I've never been to Rhodes and uh, loved it. Everybody here is just really – like the whole island is just incredibly laid back. Everybody's nice. Um, I really – like the roads are, roads are great for training. really think people – should come here for training. It's, it's incredible. What do you see as a realistic but best case scenario for the domestic U.S. road racing scene? You know, this is the scene where it really is the 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 goal is to give racing opportunities to passionate cyclists who are aspiring pros, but then also to serve as a launch pad for young up and coming riders to potentially get noticed to make it overseas. What do you see as a best case scenario uh, for the scene? Just no more races go away. You know, like. Um, I think hopefully, uh, Utah doesn't go away and, um, national stays around under 23 national stay, just no more permits get revoked, you know, like, um, right about now is, you know, when those races are going to start finalizing those permits and then maybe they could get revoked from, um, whatever, uh, local, uh, municipality they have and you know just that there's more uh all the racing days that are possible stay possible um and that that that's what i want you know uh it's a it's a weird it's weird to say that it sounds like you're setting the bar really low but um i have to remember you know like race organizers want the race to happen. You know, they're, they're not just pulling the race because they're not into it anymore. So, um, yeah, hopefully more stage races, more opportunities and that, you know, for, for me to scout kids too, you know, like more opportunities for juniors to get the attention of a Volo so they can move into, um, 2022, uh, on a, a proper under 23 team. Cause, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody, but you know, as of now, it's it's pretty much just uh, action and us. Well, Mike, I definitely appreciate the work that you guys are doing 
and you're filling a vital role within this ecosystem of you know identifying talent nurturing talent and bringing talent along to the next phase so that they can be pro road cyclists and you know for the listeners out there if it weren't for the mike creeds out there um there would be great young up-and-coming cyclists and then there would be no way to get them to the pro ranks so teams like avolo and races like redlands and gila joe martin tour utah continue to play a vital role in this ecosystem even if year in year out the ecosystem uh tends to shrink a little bit so, Mike, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I will let you get back to your Greek adventure. Uh, but, um, yeah, I hope to see you at uh, a start line soon. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it.